Blog Talk Radio. afternoon fellow constitutionalists and welcome for the to the free for all friday edition of the dan clemens show i'm your host dan clemens your constitutional warrior fighting for your right just to be an american it is november 3rd in the year of the lord 2017 remember we're hyphen free pc free zone god is still in control he does love you and we do what we do here at the dan clemens show knowing the fear of the lord we persuade folks of the truth and i'm broadcasting live from the hemlock studios here in the beautiful central Susquehanna Valley in the great Keystone State. A uh, nice day. It was actually warmed up yesterday. It's warm today. Uh, we have a, I have a really good show for you planned today. The GOP tax plan from Congress is finally out. Now, a lot of people uh, get confused about this. President Trump was proposing a tax cut plan that he sent to Congress, but only Congress can actually do the bills. You know, they, they're they the ones that pay the bills. They're the ones that can actually introduce legislation for spending. Um, so technically, it's a GOP tax plan, although the president, and this happens all the time, folks. The president actually proposed it, and the GOP is running with this. And the theme of the show today is, is uh, we're going to be talking about in the title I put down is Tax Cuts Expand Freedom and Freedoms. Uh, tax Cuts Expand freedoms. And this is something that you're going to hear a lot. You're going to hear a lot from the anti-freedom folks in the progressive movement, uh, especially groups like Indivisible Group and Common Cause. Uh, They have been very vocal on social media, although they're not that big, yet they're fairly vocal on uh, social media uh, about the GOP and the Trump tax plan, how it's a scam. They call it the Trump tax scam and Robert B. Reich, or as I, uh, I'm starting to call him, B.B. Reich, um, he likes to use debunked 
uh, studies, debunked facts about the Reagan era tax cuts. Uh, you hear, you'll hear a lot of terms, and this was this happened after the Reagan era tax cuts, uh, and they were talking about how this is just voodoo economics. And the one thing a lot of people don't know about Ronald Reagan was he is an, he was an economist. That's what he got his degree in at college. So he knew a thing or two about the economy, and he, uh, I, I couldn't point a finger to this, but just from what I've been reading about him and studying him over the years, I would have to put him in the camp of at least the Chicago School of Economics, if not in the Austrian School of Economics. So I think he might be a, a cross between the two. Uh, so it's, uh, and that's not a real big point. What's at issue here? is you'll hear the folks on the, you know, on the anti-freedom side of this that are against any type of tax cuts um, because it's going to make the, it, it will, it will drive the government smaller. And I have an article here today, if we get to it, uh, it's, it's about Vox. They're a very, very left-leaning news group. And, and, and the title of it is uh, No Vox, Smaller Government Does Not Mean White Nationalism. Everything, they, and this is, this is going to be a problem for the anti-freedom folks in this country, but everything they see is racist. It's all racist. If you're anti-immigrant, you're a racist, even though, you know, we have all sorts of races that are coming in as immigrants, you know, and that, like I said, they just throw that word up there because it's one of those catchphrases. It's one of those words that they use for fear and intimidation, especially for people who are sitting on the fence. Uh, as it were, and uh, I was told, uh, you know, we were, I, I made some comments on Facebook about, you know, Islamic terrorists and stuff like that, and we need to, you know, I think it's a good thing to ban uh, more people from Uz, I get this right, Dave, Uzbekistan, <laughs> and I, I was called a racist, and yet if you go, if you take the time, just like just like when you call somebody a Mexican, oh, or you don't want Mexicans coming into the country, we want to build a wall. Oh, you're being racist. But 6% of the population is Caucasian white. And then it breaks down from there, other, other skin colors, as it were. So, again, they, they are using a, they're using scare tactics to, to try to scare those that are on the fence to their side. Oh, I don't want to be associated with this racist, even though what you said has nothing to do with race. You know, talking, if, if I call you a dirty, rotten, bow-legged American, you know, uh, I'm not being racist. I might be other things, but I'm not being racist because America is not a race. Mexican, being Mexican is not about a race. You know, there are people who talk this way. And this is... This comes, especially those in the Democrat Party that talk this way. They are, again, this is one of these things. I'm, gonna, I'm breaking down. I'm going to buy the book, uh, Rules for Radicals, you know, because I was watching a video with um, uh, Carl Benjamin, uh, Sargon of Akkad, on, on the Internet, and he was going over the book, The Rules of Radicals, and it was amazing to me how, how we could actually use Conservatives could actually use these rules against them uh, in these rules for radicals. But one of the rules is, is you blame them for something you're doing. You know, you're deflecting blame off of you because you're blaming somebody else for something you are doing. And so when I hear 
when I hear Democrats or progressives or the anti-freedom folks out there saying, well, uh, you're just being a racist nationalist or white nationalist. Deep down in their little Democratic hearts, they are the ones that are actually being the, the raced purists because of their history and, and how they haven't really escaped that history. And we see it. It, it was one way. It was race purists against uh, blacks because they were the, the Democrats were the ones that came out and created the Jim Crow laws. Segregation was against uh, freeing the slaves to begin with, you know, the whole nine yards. And they have this racist lineage up through the ages. You know, the, the KKK was their militant arm of the, of the Democrats. Margaret Sanger, uh, the, the patriarch of Planned Parenthood, and, and, and looked upon by feminists and, you know, in the anti-freedom movement out there as to be, you know, almost holy, was a daughter of the KKK and was one of the most racist, vile human beings you'd ever want to listen to. And yet they hold her up as an example of what they need to be doing. You know, as far as Planned Parenthood, all this is reproductive rights. You men keep your fingers and hands off of that. Not thinking about and not caring about that that's actual a human being in your womb uh, that has every right to live as you do. So, you know, I don't want to get off subject here on that, but you see what I'm getting at. You know, you see what's going on here. Now, uh, so they're... You're gonna hear you're gonna hear all these things about the the taxes, you know, and and about how they're gonna be bad for everybody. And again, uh, don't don't listen to me. Don't listen to them. Go out and do your own research. And I've done, I, folks, I've made your research easy. All you gotta do is go over to DanClementShow.com and click on the show notes page for the for this episode. Nine hundred nineteen is the episode, uh, or you can go by the date if you want to write down the date of November third. But I have links to all the articles that I that I get my research out of. I'm, how much easier can that be? You don't even have to go duck, duck, go it. You know, you can just go to the DanCumbershow.com, click on the episode page, and scroll down and look what I have in there. And it's hopefully it's a good resource for you. Hopefully people are using this resource. And uh, there are going to be some changes to the to to the website. You know, I'm, I used to put them up as, everything up as just a post, and then put the um, audio feed into the post, but I'm switching everything over. You're not going to lose the old post, but from uh, after this program here, starting with Monday's show, everything's actually going to show up, and you won't notice it that much. I'm just telling you, the format on the page is going to change a little bit, but you won't notice it that much, uh, but I'll actually be putting up the podcast with the show notes and everything in that. Like I said, you won't notice hardly a difference, but I, I'm making that change over the weekend uh, because I'm, I've, I've got everything set up. I'm waiting for them to put everything from Blog Talk Radio over on their site. I don't know how long it's going to take to do that. And just everybody make a note of this. Over the weekend, I'm going to put a, uh, a note on uh, Blog Talk Radio. Today is my last live broadcast on blog talk radio and i also put the links up most people get their uh they download from stitcher or itunes because they have those a lot of people have iphones so they already have that set up on their iphones to download my uh podcast and a lot of people use stitcher and then in the future here you're going to be able to just go to uh there's going to be an rss feed button on there you can go to that and use your podcast aggregator on your computer like i do 
I use uh, gpotter it's an open source very very good program and so you'll be able to get that so to keep the the ideas of freedom flowing here and I'll be putting it out on Facebook and Twitter about the the change in format and and the getting off of blog talk radio uh, saving me some some uh, moolah uh, in the process and not having to deal with uh, the technical difficulties, not going to have to deal with all the statistical difficulties that I've had with them. So hopefully, <laughs> uh, my, my page stats are looking good. They're actually climbing up. They're, they're, uh, they're consistent. Uh, and I won't say consistently high, but they're just consistent. They're not up and down like Block Talk Radios is. So uh, we'll see what happens here in the future, but uh, getting back to, uh, I know I went off on a tangent there, but I was just thinking about those there. So we're going to talk a lot about the tax plan today, so we're going to get into it here. Um, there's some other things we're going to get into before that. Uh, I'm just going to go over this real quick after the advertisement and everything, after our, our sponsors of the show. Uh, Democrats file further impeachment charges against Trump, so we're going to we're open that up and look into that. I also have an update from that nurse back in July that was arrested for not allowing the police to draw blood off of a patient, even though the, even though he had to have a warrant to do so. Uh, I got an update on that. I think, you know, not that I'm against police and I'm not, but you know, guys, gals that are police that are police folks out there, uh, do it by the book. Just because you got a badge and a gun doesn't mean you have all the authority. And in this case, the police officer didn't. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you how much it's going to cost the, the police department or their insurance carriers uh, out there. So, all right. Uh, the official drink of the Dan Clemens Show is the Rocky Mountain High brand drink. It's a hemp-infused drink, 100, 100 milligrams of hemp oil, CBC oil, in every 16-ounce can. They have black tea, they have mango energy, they have a berry energy drink, they have a coconut lime energy drink, they have a lemonade, which is what I drink, they have um, power shots, uh, you know, caffeine shots there, and it's the good caffeine, you know, they, it's the good caffeine they put in there, and um, they have uh, power bars, they have uh, Eagle Spirit water, it's an alkaline water you can get, the whole nine yards, and so I made them the official drink of the Dan Clemens Show because, one, I use it on a daily basis. And, two, full disclosure, I have stocks invested in them. Penny stocks, but they're still stocks nonetheless invested in them. Today's Bible reading comes from the epistle, uh, Paul's epistle, epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you which, also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and having come in, come in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus Christ, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow, and of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we talked about this a little bit the other day on, on the program where uh, there are a lot of Jews out there, and I was telling you I was watching a, 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 a video with Ben Shapiro, and they asked him, you know, what was his thoughts about Jesus Christ if he thought Jesus Christ was the Messiah 
and uh, or, or what. And it was very telling what Ben Shapiro said on that video. And this is no dig at Ben Shapiro, but he has fallen in. He fell into the fallacy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the rulers of that day and a lot of folks in, in Jerusalem that day that they were looking for physical deliverance from their oppressors, and that would have been the Roman government. And nowhere, I've read through the Old Testament, and I still study in the Old Testament. I'm, uh, right now, my reading is I'm reading through the New Testament several times a year, and I'm taking blocks of the Old Testament and mixing it in with my New Testament reading. Nowhere in the Old Testament have I ever read that that was the purpose of Jesus Christ coming to this earth, dying on the cross to deliver Israel from Roman captivity, Roman bondage. You know, his, he was coming to deliver us from the bondage of sin and death. And so that's very telling. I, I, I like listening to things like that because it, it helps me to learn uh, other, other people's perspectives and where their minds are at. This quote mail comes from an unknown author. Insomuch as anyone pushes you near to God, they are your truest friend. Remember that. Remember that, folks. Today's short Bible lesson comes from Apologetics Press by Caleb Cowley. He's a Ph.D. over there. And it's a, it's a good article, a little bit long, but it's very good, very well written, and very well referenced. The eternality of God. How, In other words, how God is eternal. Really good lesson over there. And that's, that's very important for us to understand as Christians, uh, the e eternal nature uh, of God. All right. A couple things to clear up here this morning. And this just, <laughs> I, I've never got one of these before on Facebook. I posted on Facebook uh, an article by Breitbart. New York Senator Schumer created diversity visas, which invited alleged killer to New York. Now, technically, this guy I think was living down in Florida. If everything was, if everything's true about everything, and he came up to New York. Uh, but I went through this article and did some research of my own because I was like, it's 1990, back that far, yeah. And, and uh, there's nothing factually wrong in this article, okay, as far as I'm concerned. Well, maybe I could be wrong and stand to be corrected. But I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to stand to be corrected by the AP, uh, what is this, the, the Associated Press. Far too often I have found in the past, I've been doing this since the uh, uh, end of 2007, Far too often in the past, I found the AP to be to put out false or fake news. They put out a narrative that is totally biased one way. They don't give all the facts. They don't tell the truth about the situation. They only tell the, the put out the facts and truth that aligns up with their narrative. Many many times over the years, and I pointed it out many many times over the year. But this is what I got in Facebook here, real quick. A link you shared contains. Info disputed by Associated Press, an independent fact checker for Facebook. First time I've ever got one of those. And I can't respond to it. I can't find out what's inerrant, what's in error in, the, uh, in, in it at all. I, I tried to go over to Associated Press and see if they actually put something up about this. Couldn't find anything on their site. And, and so I'm going to do some more research uh, over the weekend here just to see, you know, if I can find out. But uh, they're... If you're going to put that up, if Facebook is going to put that out, if they're going to do this and say that there's something in error or disputed info, we need to be able to respond to that. We need, 
We need to be able to correct Facebook on this. We need to be able to correct AP on this. If we can find out what, what they say is uh, disputed information, it's okay if, you know, there's a lot of information people dispute out there, but, you know, we need to, at some point, at some point that information needs to quit being disputed and needs to be settled. Not based on someone's narrative or their bias or, or sound bites or talking points that they heard or because they live inside an echo chamber. It's because it's factual and it's true. So that's first. I was kind of surprised. I just got that this morning. I was really, really surprised that I got that that fact check. Oh my goodness! And it just uh, again, I just <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And again, like I said, you can't you can't respond to it. It's not like any it's not like any other one. All I did was click on it, like like someone else to to, to respond to it, and it just took me back to my article. Now I'm gonna after the show. I'm going to click on it again and go in there and, and, and put a message in, you know, a comment in. Please tell me what is in dispute about the information in this article. You know, hopefully they get back to me. I don't know. I doubt it. I really doubt they're going to get back to me. And that's what frustrates me about social media day. That's what really frustrates me about this. Okay, let me see here. Okay, I didn't get, get that over there. Uh... Let me see here. Democrats file further impeachment charges against Trump. This is by Ken uh, Kewl, K-E-W-L, over at Breitbart. And this was posted up uh, just yesterday. A group of Democrats is planning to file impeachment charges against President Donald Trump. The group's leader, Representative Louis Gutierrez, Democrat of Illinois, confirmed Wednesday. That's so it was two days ago. Well, this put it up yesterday. Uh, it is clear to us that he is unfit to be President of the United States of America, Gutierrez said Wednesday, although refused to state what the charges would be, as well as the, the names Democrats would be supporting the effort. I assure you we will not leave you lacking for a reason, said Gutierrez, who, who has previously described Trump as having a white supremacist agenda and General John Kelly as a disgrace to his uniform. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, though some of these disputes, I go back to my childhood, and if me and my brothers got into too bad of a of an argument, my dad would set us out in the yard and tell us to duke it out. You know, and, and, and <laughs> I just not not that I don't want to see it, but I don't know if they would do it. I'd like to see if Gutierrez would go up to John Kelly and and tell that to his face outside outside the White House out of uniform. That he's a disgrace to his uniform. See how far that actually gets him. <laughs> One of the Democrats who has confirmed his involvement is Representative Steve Cohen, Democrat Tennessee, who previously opened impeachment proceedings over Trump's comments in response to the white nationals rally in Charlottesville in August, outside of which a woman was killed. And again, <laughs> go back and read the words that he said. I told a lady in a comment on uh, on Facebook, one of these indivisible common uh, common cause videos and everything, I said, do you read the words that are coming out of your keyboard? You know, we're talking about illegals and taxes since we're talking about taxes. And she says, well, illegals pay taxes. You know, they pay billions of dollars a year in taxes. And I'm like, excuse me, how can an illegal person legally pay taxes? Do you, do you see the conflict or the contradiction there? And that's what we were talking about the other day. Uh, this agree to disagree, there's a contradiction there. We can't agree to disagree on that point. Either either they're legal and paying legal taxes or taxes legally, 
And, and one other person said, yeah, they're paying their Social Security that they'll never see. How can they be paying taxes or Social Security when they're illegal and cannot get the proper documents, as, as I can? And I just put that point out there. I doubt I'm going to get an answer back, and if I do, it's probably going to be convoluted. But again, this is another thing that goes along with these impeachment. No high crimes or misdemeanors have been put forth. This idea that, oh, he's a white supremacist because of his comments at, about Charlottesville, they're only mad because he lumped Antifa and Black Lives Matter in with the white supremacist group as a hate group. That's what they're mad about. And because he did that, oh, he's in support of the white supremacist agenda. you got to be kidding me. I mean... Honestly, folks, I'm really questioning the sanity of some of our elected officials. I think guys like Gutierrez and Cohen and some of these other guys that have brought forth these impeachment, you know, or try to bring forth these impeachment proceedings, have something mentally wrong with them. And maybe they're the ones that need to be investigated. You know, and it just keeps going and going and going. It's like the Energizer, buddy. It never stops. I imagine, honestly, folks, if, if... Trump goes to full eight years. I think this is going to be full wall-to-wall, 24-7 Trump bashing. You know, clear to the end. If he goes to a full second term and isn't removed for for any reasons like that and does a good job, it's going to be 24-7, 365 days a year Trump bashing, which is good for a guy like me, even though I'm not a Trump supporter. There's a lot of misinformation that goes out in that Trump bashing that, that is fodder for a guy like me to sit here and commentate on. Okay, um, oh, this this one here, folks. I, I just, <laughs> back in July, July 26th, actually, uh, there was a nurse uh, out in Salt Lake City. Uh, the Utah nurse, this was an article over at uh, uh, ArsTechnia.com by David, David Kravitz. I wonder if he's any relation to the Kravitz's, the Kravitz on uh, Bewitched. I'm not sure. You know, maybe someone can check that for me. <laughs> anyway, um, he writes in here, the Utah nurse who was roughed up and arrested on July 26th by Salt Lake City cop because she told the officer that he needed a warrant to draw blood from an unconscious patient has settled for a $500,000 payout. Uh, body cam footage from the scene shows University Hospital nurse uh, Alex Wobbles calmly telling the officer who was trained for the task of blood withdrawal that he cannot take a blood sample because the patient who was involved in a vehicle crash had neither been arrested nor gave consent. Then the, the cop lunges and grabs the nurse as she was uh, fearfully backing away. He rushes her outside the hospital and handcuffs her, all the while she's screaming that there's no reason for her detainment. Uh, somebody help. We're done, Salt Lake City Detective Jesse Payne repeatedly says. What was told the news conference Tuesday that the footage went, uh, which went viral made her case. We all deserve to know the truth, and the truth comes when you see the actual raw footage, and that's what happened in my case. No matter how truthful I was in telling my story, it was nothing compared to what the people saw uh, as the visceral reaction people experienced when watching the footage of the experience that I went through. Charges were never filed against a nurse who was detained uh, in a police vehicle for 20 minutes. Now I reported the next day or the day after that there had been no 
uh, charges filed. And she's actually released and went back to work. The $500,000 settlement is to be paid jointly by Salt Lake City and University Hospital. A hospital officer on the scene told the nurse that she would be obstructing justice if she interfered with Payne's investigation. Payne was fired from his post on October 10th, and another officer involved was demoted, according to Salt Lake Tribune. Both officers are challenging their punishment. The patient at the center of the dispute was a truck driver from Idaho named William Gray, who died last month. A man fleeing police crashed into the semi that Gray was driving on July 26, leaving him severely burned. The nurse said she would donate some of the money from the settlement to the Utah Nurses Association and would also financially back people in their bid to obtain body cam footage of police incidents. So here's what I, I see as a clear case of justice being dealt out. You know, the, the, the officer was fired and uh, someone else is demoted. Hopefully they don't get their jobs back. You don't need police like that on the force. You just don't. They should always err on the side of caution. I think, the, I think some police out there are just getting too aggressive. And that's part of the nature, part of the, what we're living in today. All right. Now, the story I said I was going to get to today that we uh, uh, had over from yesterday is a, it's a study out. And we've been talking a lot about free speech and, and the, on campuses and how it's being eroded. Okay, and this is by Rachel uh, Fromer from over to freebeacon.com, posted on November 1st. A new study, and there's a link in there, folks, when you go there. And again, it's so easy for you to find out these stories. You don't have to look them up. Just go to danclementshow.com and click on the show notes page and scroll down. You'll find these stories and more. There's a lot of stories each day I put in the show notes real quick here that I do not go over, but I, th I think you might find interesting, and that's why I put them on my show notes page and put them over on the, the show. A new study examining the country's views on free speech found that 62% of students feel they are prevented from saying things they believe and right-leaning views have taken the hardest hit. Emily uh, Ekins, the director of polling at the Libertarian Cato Institute, who conducted the study, told the Washington Free Beacon that both Republican and Democrats reported uh, it is their more conservative views they, they are wary of sharing, demonstrating that the leftist center controls social power. Liberals reported feeling uncomfortable, saying they thought Confederate statues shouldn't be taken down, that supporting the First Amendment doesn't equal racism, and that identity politics has gone too far. Meanwhile, 50% of students say they do the dominant political view on campus is liberal. Only 20% believe their campus has a balanced mix of political perspectives. We don't see conservatives reporting they are uncomfortable expressing liberal views. The, it's the left of center that has the social power, said Ekins. The Cato study titled The State of Free Speech and Tolerance in America breaks down respondents familiarly with social justice keywords, support for hate speech uh, statutes, and views on disciplinary action for student protesters who disrupt speakers. Liberals were more ready than conservatives to support banning speakers and were less likely to advocate for any form of disciplinary action against students who disrupt a speaker, according to the study. 75% of Republicans want some form of punishment for disruptive students while 64% Democrats prefer to see an administration listen to and address the students' demands, uh, so do 50%, 56% of college students. Now, let me stop the reading there. 
Um, I was watching a video this morning. Uh, I don't know if I, I have to look up the link to it if I remember to put it in there. It was basically, it was, uh, I think it was UC Berkeley. Uh, so maybe you can go look it up. It was UC Berkeley, and they were getting ready to do some exams, and there was three or four students got up in the front and were protesting the taking of the exams right then. They wanted to be able to take them home with them. Uh, and, and just idiocy ensued. Idiocy really ensued. And, and one of them was even saying, you know, we shouldn't have to take exams. You know, basically they just wanted their degree given to them without any measure of if they learned anything on their subject, whatever they were studying. You know, and so I, on a lot of these college campuses, folks, the inmates are running the asylum. And idiocy ensues. Why aren't we seeing students disciplined for treading on free speech? Well, most college campuses are left to center, and people with those views told us they don't want to see the students disciplined, said Atkins. Atkins warned about the cost of such behavior. If universities give in and cancel any speaker who, who a substantial number of students find offensive, we will miss out on a wide number of public policy debates so society needs to be having, said Atkins. Here, we want to have a conversation about police reform, but, but how are we supposed to do that if no one is allowed to speak about it? 61% of students think colleges owe, owe to their students to expose them to all types of viewpoints, but 57% think colleges have an obligation to protect its students from offensive speech and ideas. A full 70% think it is morally unacceptable to say offensive things. Now, <laughs> and this is where... And, and honestly, I don't care, but this is where I get in trouble with a lot of the social justice tyrants out there. You know, where, where I say, well, this is a very subjective term. What's, what is offensive to you may not be offensive to me. And trust me when I tell you, trust me when I tell you, my threshold for being offended is very, very high. It really is. So again, it's very subjective. What I don't find objectionable. Now, are there videos I watch that there's some objectionable speech or, or, or words in that? Yes. Yes, there is. Okay. But the ideas that are being put forth, even if they are objectionable to what I believe in, or they're, they're uh, 180 degrees out of what I believe in, how do I know what the other side thinks or what they support if I don't listen to them, if I don't expose myself to them? And, try, and you don't have to trust me. You can go through my show notes. Now, they're not every day. But I do look over Huffington Post and Slate and Salon and Vox and BuzzFeed, some of these more left-to-center, what, what people call left-to-center uh, publications on the Internet. And some of them, Slate actually, out of all those I just mentioned, Slate does a better job than most of them explaining both sides, believe it or not. But again... Are we to base uh, our morality on subjective things? Thou shalt not kill. That's not subjective. That says thou shalt not kill. And actually the more proper translation there is thou shalt not murder. You know, premeditatively take a life. You know, that's, that's not subjective. That is a very objective moral standard. So 70% think it is morally unacceptable to say offensive things. And, and again, 
if I'm talking, if I am trying, if I'm giving you, let's, we're going to get into the taxes here. Let's say I, I support the uh, GOP tax plan. I don't support everything in it. I, I, you know, there's there's some things in it. I wish they'd just quit uh, subsidizing, you know, like homeowners over renters, you know, with the homeowner's deduction. Because, frankly, I went back and looked at mine over the years with what I pay in my mortgage and stuff like that, and it's not that much. It's not that much of a savings. And if it went away, it really wouldn't bother us, you know, too much here. And besides, and we'll get into it, they, uh, the GOP and President Trump, I think, have taken care of and addressed uh, the, that, uh, per, that subject. But let me read up. This is very, very important. Let me finish reading up this article. Though 85% of students recognize it would be difficult to ban hate speech, again, another subjective term, what is hate to somebody isn't hate to me, okay? 62% still think society can somehow impose such a prohibition while maintaining free speech. Can't be done. I'm going to stop the reading there, folks. I'm telling you right now, it cannot be done. You cannot impose your moralities on free speech because you are offended or it hurts your little feelings or whatever, you know, drives you into a safe space because you think it's offensive and you want prohibitions against it. It's not going to happen because once you start going down, and that is, that's more than a slippery slope, folks. When you start regulating free speech that way, you just jumped off a cliff with no hope of restraining yourself before you hit that sudden stop at the bottom. You're going to destroy the First Amendment. You start doing stuff like that. And quite frankly, in my opinion, my humble opinion, they start trying to regulate free speech like that, it's going to be a free-for-all in the courts to uh, get the Supreme Court to reject these type of things. Because, again, they're very, very subjective. And, and honestly, I don't, want it, I don't want it left up to the, the courts to say what is or is not free speech. I think that should be up to the American people. And I think freedom of speech should be give, given the widest latitude as possible. If, it, if not, then it's not free speech. People are not terribly consistent in principle defense of speech. Uh, they are sure... Uh, they are sure we can protect the First Amendment and curb hate speech, says Ekins. This is across political lines. Each side has their issue that they want to see people punished for. And that's exactly what, She hits it right on the head there. She hits it right on the head here. Rachel just boils it right down here. That they, they have these things across political lines that they want to see each other, someone on the other side, punished for. And again, that's why I went to this freedom and liberty and anti-freedom, anti-liberty paradigm instead of left, right, you know, uh, conservative, liberal. Because there's conservatives out there that are just as anti-freedom on, su- on some subjects as uh, anybody else out there. Case in point. 54% of Republicans want to fire business executives who burn flags on weekends. of Democrats respond that saying illegal immigrants should be deported is hateful or offensive. Those two things right there. I'm a veteran. And I'm proud to be a veteran. I'm I'm glad I was able to serve my country in some small way that way. You know, serving in our armed forces. Some people disagree with that, but I'm not here to dispute that. And uh, I, I do honor the flag. And I, I, I honor what it represents, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. I honor what it represents. But someone burning the flag 
is part of freedom freedom of speech. People want to put laws on burning the flag. I mean, that's uh, you, you can, but those are going to be challenged, and there's going to be a lot of butt burn going on out there because of these challenges. And again, I, I think it is part of freedom of speech. Do I like it? No. Do I think it's detestable? Yes. Will I protect someone's right to do it? Yes. Uh, yes, I will. And, and the same way with, with the immigrants. I've been told, I've been called a racist for a long time about my stance. Back in 2007, I've been voicing my stance on immigration. And I've been called all sorts of things. And, you know, it's, what, I, what I'm saying is hateful and offensive. Oh, so me wanting people to obey the law and come here legally is hateful and offensive. You know, okay, I don't get it. And you can't support that stance. And I'm not going to agree to disagree with you. What I'm going to do is put the uh, burden of proof back on you and say, prove it. That way you don't ever get uh, uh, Kafka trapped into something. Make the, if, if you get accusations thrown at you, make them prove it. Don't respond to it. Don't do anything else but sit there and make them prove it. Nine times out of ten, especially on these uh, keyboard warriors out there on the Internet, uh, they, they will not do it. All right, meanwhile, college students voiced broad support for passing laws making it illegal to say offensive things about Jews, immigrants, LGBT uh, individuals. Akins attributed support for hate speech statutes among students in part uh, to uh, immaturity and lack of world experience, but said a more troubling fact may be at play. What happens when you are 18 to 26 really sticks with you. Older liberals who were students in the 1960s grew up in a time when the censors who were on the right uh, so for them, the First Amendment meant and continues to mean freedom, the civil rights movement, uh, said Ekins. But a lot of younger students associate the First Amendment with Trump and Milo Yiannopoulos who mock transgender people. And, and honestly, I think mock, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, yeah. Trump mocking transgender people. Here again, I think we've got an issue here where he's guilty by association and it's a reverse association. He's not associating with them they're associating with him uh, you know when milo calls him you know uh, big daddy or something like that anyway i, I finish up past couple, last couple paragraphs today's students aren't seeing the first amendment as a tool to overcome oppression and they that won't change that Atkins. cato conducted its survey with the help of yougov which co uh, collected responses august 15th to the 23rd from 2547 americans 18 years old and older with a final representation date set or data set at 2,300 folks. So we see here on college campuses, and this is where we really got to grab them, and I, and I do not repeat, I do not let these folks get away with this. I just won't. I will, I will not let them get, I will not let people in my boat, I will not let them that are in a moat get away with their, with their arcane, inaccurate, inflammatory ideas about the First Amendment and what speech is offensive and what isn't offensive. I'm just not going to do it. And I've been called a lot of things that I can't even share with you on Facebook because of this. And it's not like, it's not like I'm, I'm standing there calling them all sorts of names, you dirty, rotten, so's and so's. If you don't believe this way, then, you know, you're, you know, uh, you know, I could go hellfire and brimstone on them if I wanted to, but I don't do that. I put out the facts and the truth and say, you know, you can't prove that what I'm saying is hate speech. 
Now, you may think it's hateful because you would never say, oh, I think it's hateful if I said that. And that's that's on you. <laughs> that's on you. But if somebody else says, says something you think is hateful, it doesn't necessarily mean it's hateful because, again, you cannot prove that it's hateful. Sorry. You, you don't get to be the arbiter without a debate, without a discussion between two people, what is or is not hate speech or, or offensive speech or whatever. And if there isn't a conversation about it, again, who died left you, boss, if we can't sit there and discuss this? All right. Now the big story of the day. This is from the Daily Signal. i got to wet my whistle here a little bit. Oh, coffee's really good this morning, folks. Again, I'm, I'm, it's half-calf coffee. I tried the decaf, and it just wasn't working, and I can't handle the full anymore. Uh, so I went half-calf, and it seems to be a good <laughs> a good medium <laughs> for me anyway. Okay, GOP tax plan would revitalize the U.S. economy, give significant tax relief. This is over from the Daily Signal, and this has so many authors on it. Let me get through these. Um, Romina uh, Boca, Rachel Gresler, Adam Michael, Lindsey Burke, David Burton, Nicholas Loris, uh, Kate, Katie Tubb. Uh, these, these were all people uh, that helped with this because uh, there were a lot of things that had to gather together here. We're not going to be able to read the whole thing. I got other articles that actually break down a few more things with this in this article here. House Republicans unveiled their plan to update the nation's tax code on Thursday. If they're successful at passing the plan known as the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it will mark the first time in more than three decades that Americans will have a chance to experience the benefits of comprehensive pro-growth tax reform. Tax reform should provide relief to all Americans and ultimately help the economy break out of its stagnant economic growth. To achieve this, tax reform should simply uh, or simplify the current tax code, lower tax rates on individuals and businesses, and update the business tax system to make the U.S. competitive against uh, again and remove barriers to investment and job creation. The plan that does this has the potential to unleash higher wages, create more jobs, spread untold opportunity through a larger and more dynamic economy. Americans need an alternative. Uh, excuse me, I keep reading now. I wish they quit putting that in there. <laughs> okay, uh, that's my fist. <laughs> <laughs> My fist of fury in there. The GOP tax plan scores well on all these fronts. And I trust people over Daily Wire, Daily Caller, Daily Signal, uh, some of these uh, over at uh, FEE.org, uh, Mises, Cato Institute. Now, the more Aust Austrian economists, and I agree with them on this, that there's some things in here like the, the some of the deductions that they still have in there for families and homeowners and stuff like that. They need to get away, before I read into this, they need to do away with all the deductions. They need to go to the lowest tax, lowest taxes that we possibly can, which I've always said a flat tax of 10%, uh, and you don't tax the first you know, single. And they got that right, uh, 12000 for singles and 24000 for married couples. You don't tax, that's a zero tax bracket, which is actually another tax bracket that people, especially on, in the lamestream media, do not report on. So I, do, I don't think it goes far enough, but it's a step in the right direction. So I'm okay with that. Let's, let's not baby steps, but let's keep going in the right direction here, especially when it comes to the estate tax. Not that I have to worry about that, 
but I know a lot of people that have small businesses that are worth quite a bit of money. You know, we're talking up in the millions of dollars, and if it has to be inherited by somebody else, I don't see why the government gets to take another bite at the apple because they've already paid taxes on this stuff throughout their careers and their life, okay? i got to turn this chair just a hair bit. That's more comfortable. All right. All right, some key takeaways. One, simplification. And I'm all for simplification. I wish we would get it down to where, like I said, we had just one tax bracket and we could file our taxes on a postcard. You know, to say we're breathing and this is what we made, these are taxes that were withheld, and, you know, make sure that, you know, everything's hunky-dory, right? And so we, and I know that would decimate an industry, but I'm sure there's other things they can do as accountants and, and, and tax preparers and stuff. Matter of fact, they can come on YouTube and start up a show like I did. <laughs> Just kidding, folks. Uh, lower rates. Uh, the proposed plan would drastically lower tax rates for corporations, small businesses, and lower to moderate income individuals and families. Now, the one thing this would do, as I was digging through this, and I think it's lower in the article here and we'll get to it, uh, but it's going to eliminate a lot of the, the deductions, like the child tax credit and stuff like that. And a lot of these deductions were actually giving people money through the tax code, through the IRS, who didn't make any money to begin with, didn't pay taxes to begin with because of their income levels or whatever, Okay. Um, let's see, the, the new 20% corporate tax rate would help the, make the U.S. competitive with the rest of the world, and the top 25% small business or pass-through tax rate would go a long way towards uh, stimulating entrepreneurship, job creation, and income growth across all income groups in America. And we talked about that pass-through, you know, that pass-through um, uh, tax rate you know, for, for single, you know, partnerships or entrepreneurs, you know, individual corporations, stuff like that. Business taxes. Um, oh, excuse me. I want to read this one other paragraph here. By maintaining the top marginal tax rate on individuals, however, the plan would fail to achieve optimal e economic growth as it leaves a significant portion of economic activity subject to the 39.6% federal tax rate. And hopefully they can, they can talk about this and get that stupid thing knocked down. That is ridiculous, folks. <laughs> Again, uh, I was watching a video the other day, and you go back from, you know, back from the Depression on up to today, and historically the government has only ever collected 17% of GDP. That's it. No matter if they had real high rates or real low rates, it's 17%. So even then, I would be happy, even if we just made it 17% for everybody, business tax, individuals, the whole nine yards. But I digress. Business taxes, the combination of business tax reforms, including the top 20% uh, corporate tax rate, five years worth of full expensing, and a, and a uh, modernized in, uh, international tax system would provide a huge boost to the U.S. economy and its workers. Uh, now, here's some of the details. Lower and simplified bottom rates, uh, but keep the top marginal rate, which I don't agree with. You're going to cut taxes, cut them for everybody. You know, and, and this, again, this, this is probably going to be the only way they're going to get this passed if they keep that top marginal rate. I don't agree with it, but like I said, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. This is probably just an appeasement for uh, the anti-freedom folks in Congress. 
Uh, so they, they go down to talk about uh, different rates ranging from 10 to 39.6% uh, to 4 and that, that was different ranges before. Now it's 12%, 25%, 35%, and 39.6%. Most low to middle income earners would, would face lower marginal tax rates, which would help encourage more work and also put more money back in the taxpayer pockets to spend more productively than the federal government. Unfortunately, the plan maintains the top marginal rate of 39.6%, which reaches 43.4% when uh, factoring in Obamacare surtax. With only one uh, of every 150 taxpayers actually paying the top rate, more than one of, one of every $5 of taxable income is subject to that tax rate. That means a lot of economic activity is affected by the top rate and lowering it would have a significant and positive impact on investment, productivity, incomes, job growth in the USA. And this was proved, no matter what the anti-freedom folks out there say, the 1983 Reagan tax cuts, this, they, were, they were proven correct. They, they launched an economic boom that lasted up to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was a beneficiary of the Reagan economics, but they don't want to admit that. Again, as I talked on the show this past week, uh, yesterday I guess it was, um, socialists don't like history because history proves them wrong. And B.B. Reich, he's just as much a socialist or fascist as anybody else out there. And I'm not saying a Nazi fascist. I'm just saying economically and governmentally a fascist. Uh, and, and he doesn't like the history. As a matter of fact, he actually distorts history and rewrites history. Uh, so anyway, uh, new income brackets, lower marginal rates for many. Uh, let's see here. There are just a lot of numbers that go into that. Uh, there were some other things down here. I don't want to get too far out in the weeds because it's hard for people to uh, follow that. Double, this is one I want to get to. Double standard deduction would simply tax uh, simplify taxes for tens of millions. The GOP, GOP plan roughly doubles the standard deductions from 6350 to $12,000 for individuals and from 12700 $12, to 24000 for married couples. This would go a long way towards helping Americans keep more of their hard-earned dollars. Doubling the standard dedu deduction would also vastly simplify tax filing for tens of millions of Americans who would no longer need to itemize their deductions. This will make tax filing easier and, and would make postcard size tax returns a reality for certain taxpayers. We estimate that doubling the standard deduction would roughly cut the percentage of taxpayers who itemize their deductions in half from 30% to 15.5%, saving about 22 million taxpayers from the headaches of keeping track of all their itemized deductions. When combined with the plan's elimination of state and local income and sales tax, the percentage of taxpayers who itemize their deductions would drop even further. State and local deductions partially eliminated. The proposed tax plan would partially eliminate state and local tax deductions by getting rid of the deduction for income or state tax and by capping the deduction for property taxes at $10,000. State and local tax deductions provide no economic benefit. In fact, they are outright detrimental to the economy. By allowing those who itemize their taxes to deduct property taxes as well as income or sales tax, they pay the state and local governments. Uh, these deductions shift the burden of high-tax states onto low-tax states and spread the portion of high-income earners' taxes onto lower and middle-earner middle tax bills. 
Like I said, they're, what they're doing is they're spreading the pain with all these deductions. They're, they're spreading the pain throughout the country instead of in certain regions. And if it stayed in those regions, then maybe those regions of states or whatever would be forced to deal with that. Okay. For example, just seven states, California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, Connecticut, receive more than 50% of the value of the state and local tax deductions. And they're some of the most highly taxed states in the country. Uh, on net, the average millionaire receives 102 times as much benefit from the state and local deduction as a typical household that makes between 75 and 100,000. Eliminating the sales and income tax deductions would be a huge benefit to at least 85% of Americans. Currently, 70% of taxpayers do not itemize their deductions and therefore receive no benefit from the state and local tax deductions. We estimate that doubling the standard deduction as proposed in the tax plan would reduce the percentage of taxpayers that itemize to just over 15%. Eliminating deductions would also provide a huge boost in federal tax revenues to, keep, to help accommodate the plan's lower marginal tax rates, which benefit all taxpayers, even those uh, who, who lose their state and local income and sales tax deductions. Maintaining the, the, the property tax deduction could have unintended consequences that would adversely impact lower middle income families. That's because eliminating the income and sales tax deductions but keeping the property, property tax deduction would encourage states to concentrate their tax burden on property taxes, which would make home ownership less affordable particularly for low- and middle-income families. The plan's $10,000 cap on property tax deductions would help limit the subsidy to very wealthy homeowners in high-tax states, but the cap should be even lower if the goal is to maintain the deduction primarily for middle-class families. According to IRS data, the only taxpayers who would be affected by the cap are those who make well over a million dollars a year. Eliminating the personal exemptions, increasing child tax credit would be uh, better target uh, would better target families. Now, this is this is something I'm still fuzzy on. I'm not really sure about all the ins and outs of the child's tax credit because we never qualified for it. As a general principle, Congress should refrain from implementing social policy through the tax code. But if lawmakers do want to provide child relief financial assistance to households through the tax code, the child tax credit is a more efficient way to give targeted relief rather than a, the personal exemption. The proposed tax plan would eliminate the existing $3,400 personal exemption, would combine the new double-sized standard deduction and $600 increase to the child tax credit from $100 to $1,600. Uh, virtually all taxpayers, including families with children, would face lower tax bills, even excluding the current proposed exemption. But as mentioned, the personal exemption is not the most efficient way to provide relief to taxpayers based on their family size, as the progressive nature of the tax codes means that wealthier families receive more value per person uh, from the exemption than lower and middle, class, middle income families. The child tax credit is a better way to provide child-related financial relief to families who need it most. Unlike the personal exemption, the value of the child cred uh, tax credit is not smaller or lower is not smaller for low-income families. In fact, it is lower and even non-existent for upper-income families as the credit phases out rather quickly between income levels of $110,000 and $160,000 a year. So while the enhanced child tax credit would not contribute much to economic growth, it would help provide additional tax relief to low- and middle-income families with children. 
Uh, cutting corporate tax rate would raise workers' wages. And this one here is the biggest bone of contention with B.B. Reich, Indivisible Group, and, and Common Cause, some of these other groups out there that say that this is just a tax scam going on. Because in their mind, because they don't, they don't understand competition, they don't understand capitalism, they don't understand free markets and how they work, especially that little word I slipped in there about competition. They think, and I'm going to tell you what they think before we get into this, they think if corporations have more money, they're going to give bigger golden parachutes to their CEOs or upper management and board members, and the heck with the workers. And some companies might do that. Some big corporations might do that. But I, let me tell you this. How are they going to compete against other corporations if these other corporations decide to keep all the benefits for upper management and board members the same and actually use that money to expand productions, hire more workers, and, and, and offer higher wages and benefits for the workers to be more competitive against somebody else? See, that's what, you'll never hear them talk about that. I, I, I shared a video months ago about this where I went through a B.B. Rice video and just hammered every point he put out there and just told you what he was leaving out. And, uh, you know, I had references and everything in that video. But you can, again, uh, they only tell you part of the story, only what makes their side look good, all right? So cutting corporate tax rates would raise workers' wages, uh, permanently lowering the corporate tax rate to 20% in the single most important growth, uh, pro-growth change included in the tax cuts and job acts. U.S. businesses currently face the highest statutory corporate tax rate in the developed world. The United States ranks consistently as one of the worst in business tax environments in the world. Over the past few decades, countries around the world have steadily lowered their corporate tax rates, leaving American businesses behind. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act takes a bold step to move us or US, to move U.S. corporate tax rate into line with around the world. The plan calls for a permanent 20% corporate tax rate down from the current federal rate of 35%. A 20% corporate tax rate would encourage significant new investment in the U.S., uh, which would primarily benefit workers uh, through higher wages and more jobs. The permanence of the U.S. tax cut is especially important. A temporary cut, rate cut, would have left significant potential economic growth on the table. A permanent tax cut, as proposed Thursday, would drive growth in business investment, would lead to greater worker productivity, more hiring, significant wage increase. And let me stop reading there. Like I said, this is where the anti-freedom folks, their arguments fall down because they, oh, the corporations just don't do that. Um... Quite honestly, if, if, and if you look at, now they're only using the U3, but the unemployment's down just a little over 4%, which we're, if it gets below 4%, some economists, and I don't agree with them, but some economists say we're in full employment. And the stock markets hit, hit new records every day, and most analysts are saying this is not a bubble, uh, it's not going to be corrected, this is because businesses are expanding, uh, they're enthusiastic about the economic situation in the future of America, and they're acting like that. And see, this is where the anti-freedom folks actually fall down in this argument. Oh, they're not going to give it to the workers, so the workers are going to get hosed again. And that's just not the case. So my buddy Dave was saying, you know, he works for a corporation, and, you know, they, they want to take care of their workers. And I, I worked for enough of them over the past years that they, they struggle to give any type of raises to anybody. 
because of the economic uh, structures of, that the government has imposed on the economy. So it's, when you hear somebody, question them on this. Ask them for proof, you know, why they're against this, why they think that corporations don't spend money on their workers and stuff like that. Because there's competition, I slipped that word in there, competition. If they don't take care of their workers better, there's more, if your company makes widget A, there might be three or four other corporations out there that make a widget A too. And so people can go between these companies and find out which the best place is for, you know, uh, worker atmosphere, wages, benefits, all that kind of stuff. And, and corporations know this. Uh, these guys like B.B. Rice think these corporations work in a vacuum. They know what competition is and they know uh, that, yeah, they can spread the wealth around, but they need to make sure uh, they take care of the workers. You know, they need to make sure they take care of the workers so they can have the best workers. They're able to have a, an abundance of workers to choose from so they can try to weed out the bad ones. And, you know, they're going to have that ability if they're offering higher benefits and wages. Again, I, to me, that's, so, that's such a simple idea. It's like falling off the log simple. But you'll hear a lot of anti-freedom folks out there tell you that that's just not going to be the case. Uh, Five-year expensing. The most pro-growth component of tax reform is permanent and full immediate expensing of all business costs. This provision alone could allow the economy to grow 5% larger and create 1 million jobs over the next decade, or sooner in my opinion. The Tax Cuts and Job Act would improve the status quo by allowing five years of expensing. The, uh, the proposal leaves some growth on the sidewalk by pursuing expensing as a temporary policy and limiting it to property and new equipment. Expensing allows companies to deduct the cost of investments immediately, such as the cost of new farm equipment or new factory equipment. Expensing lowers the tax rate uh, on such new investments, allowing businesses to expand their U.S. investments, creating jobs in the U.S., and uh, ultimately leading to higher wages and lower economy. A similar version of the expensing provision proposed, proposed in the Tax Cuts and Job Acts as scored by the Tax Foundation would grow the economy by 0.18% over 10 years. This stands in stark contrast with the 5% growth the economy could experience if expensing were applied more broadly and made permanent. So, uh, lower rates on pass-through businesses. Most businesses, including the vast majority of small businesses, are taxed as S-corporations or partnerships. Rather than pay taxes at the business level, the income they earn is passed through to the individual owners who pay taxes on their individual tax returns. Pass through business accounts uh, for about two-fifths of payroll. The GOP tax proposal would reduce the rate of these businesses' uh, pay to 25% from, the, from as high as 40%. This aspect of the proposal will help small firms grow and have a positive impact on job creation and job or wage growth. The proposal also contains rules to prevent higher income salaries from being recharacterized as pass-through income, although such rules are needed if pass-through income is to be taxed at a lower rate that, that, uh, than high salary income. They, in, in, uh, or they introduce substantial complexity to law. Uh, there is no simple way to address the problem in a fair and economically conservative manner. The GOP tax bill would do the following. Investors who do not work for the business get the 25% rate. Uh, for those uh, that work for the business, they, there are rules determining how much salary subject to higher rates and how much is passed through 
or capital income subject to the lower rate. These rules are as follows. In general, 70% is treated as salary and 30% is passed through or capital income. Taxpayers can elect to use the alternative facts and circumstances test, which would determine the capital income by looking at the investment in the company and multiplying that by some of the federal short-term rate plus 7%, i.e. about 8%. Uh, there, there are, in addition, rules, and it goes on down. They talk about all these rules. You can go read those uh, through there. Um, repeals the estate tax after 2023. I don't understand why that cannot. Well, I do understand because I did some reading, but at first when I heard this, I'm like, man, they just ought to do that automatically. But the problem is a lot of states have already been planned out, and to do it automatically here, that would be a huge burden on folks uh, to try to get that, although... I think a lot of people with the with the right type of properties would, would gladly go through that burden if they just dropped it off tomorrow. Repeals the estate tax or the death tax, inheritance tax. It's all those the same. The tax cut and job act would repeal the estate tax along with uh, generation skipping taxes after five years and would immediately double the value of the basic exclusion from the current level uh, of $5 million $5.45 million. The plan would not repeal the, the related gift tax, but would lower the top rate to 35% and index the annual and lifetime exclusions to inflation. Mm. Here's another one here. Repeals the alternative minimum tax. The tax cuts and job acts eliminates the alternative minimum tax in both the corporate and individual tax codes. Repeal this tax is a tremendous simplification of the tax codes for millions of individuals and businesses. The alternative minimum tax generally applies to alternative tax rate to a more broadly defined measure of income and allows a narrower set of deductions with the intentions of increasing the tax liability for those firms and individuals who can uniquely lower their effective tax rate by taking advantage of the more of the normal tax system. The alternative minimum tax, however, does uh, does this intended job poorly and inefficiently by burdening taxpayers with additional paperwork requiring millions of Americans and businesses to calculate their taxes twice. Uh, while this can be difficult in the past uh, to fully eliminate the alternative minimum tax uh, because of the revenue it generates, the tax cut and jobs uh, changes to the tax rates and brackets along with the elimination. <coughs> Let families save for pre-K uh, through tw- or uh, private uh, K through 12 education expenses and advances uh, advances school choice. There's going to be some more deductions in there about that. Uh, there's a lot of numbers in there. Moving close to a free market energy policy. Uh, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act makes a profound policy statement that is to be commended. The goal of the bill's energy measure is to move closer to a free market energy agenda. Free market supply Free markets supply affordable energy innovation and a clean environment better than any heavy-handed regulatory approach to manipulate how people produce and use energy. In getting to the goal, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act will repeal and sunset targeted tax credits for, for, slow down, for specific energy sources, technologies, and extraction methods. Uh, regrettably, though, the bill extends and phases out several energy tax credits that expired in 2016-2017. Eliminating the preferential treatment in the tax code uh, would drive energy innovation, competition, job creation, resulting in healthier, robust energy sector 
uh, that's independent of Washington. We're going to get into another article here quick on this. Uh, cutting oil and natural gas subsidies, and this is good. We need to cut these subsidies for these corporations. This is corporate welfare, folks. Uh, one of the things and I haven't seen in here yet that really needs to be tackled are the sugar subsidies. Those are draconian. They're not needed. The, and, and it's only benefits a handful of taxpayers in the country. Anyway, cutting oil and natural gas subsidies. Uh, proponents of re renewable subsidies often argue that oil companies receive subsidies, so wind and solar should get them too. Uh, yet the left often overstates its case on what truly counts as a subsidy for oil, broadly available tax credits, and ignores the fact that the government does far more to harm natural resource development than help it. So they're, they're uh, going to be cutting those type of uh, energy uh, subsidies. Uh, um, green energy subsidies. i got an article. We're going to talk about that just real quick. Nuclear tax credits. Uh, th that's in there. And, and, and it's, is it a perfect bill? No, it, it's not a perfect bill, but is it a step in the right direction? It absolutely is. Um, the Daily Caller is talking about a GOP tax plan eliminates green subsidies. This is by uh, Michael uh, Bastish. Uh, the GOP's plan to overhaul the U.S. tax code includes changes to green energy tax subsidies that lawmakers say will save taxpayers taxpayer, billions of dollars every year. Uh, and uh, it, the only thing it's going to really do here once we get rid of these subsidies, it's, um, it's going to eliminate some of the... Um, Democrats uh, uh, fundraising abilities and paybacks to their bundlers and stuff like that. <laughs> like Solyndra. Okay. The owner of Solyndra got like five, uh, 500 million. It was a lot of, it was a, it was a lot of money, a lot of scratch. And, and they come to find out they were a bundler for the Clintons and for the DNC. So they're, they're going to tackle this. They're getting rid of the, uh, uh, Green subsidies, as it were. Um, NFL. <laughs> we talked about this. I got a video about this, about how uh, the NFL is paid by the Department of uh, Defense. Uh, all these taxes. We're talking millions and millions of dollars of taxes every year uh, for these patriotic military displays at their games. And from BluntForceTruth.com, NFL loses big tax subsidy in the GOP plan. It looks like Congress is taking steps to end some of the special tax breaks and subsidies for major sports leagues in, in its tax reform package. Professional sports leagues like the NFL enjoyed tax exemptions on the municipal bonds that are used to build their stadiums. A provision in Section 3604 eliminates this perk. If sports teams want to build new stadiums, they're going to pay the federal taxes to do it. Uh, these municipal bonds exemptions aren't the only tax breaks carved out for the NFL in the current tax code. On Wednesday, CRTV White House correspondent John Miller highlighted the special tax breaks the NFL receives and pointed out how they shouldn't be getting them if some players want to disrespect the national anthem and flag. That's not a good reason for stopping it, but that the national anthem protest has actually brought this information out that a lot of Americans did not know. Um, part of this from other, other sources I've been reading, they're not only going to get rid of the bond, uh, things, they're going to stop the DOJ from giving millions and millions of dollars to the NFL, uh, to do these things. So, and then 
finally sort of wrapping up all of our tax things and not finally wrapping it up but you know we have a couple other things I want to get to but there's an article by Vox uh, that I definitely want to get to here real quick uh, let me I gotta do this up real quick get you back over here but there's uh, one more thing and it has to do with deregulation and a lot of this deregulation that's going to be going on is actually uh, with the tax code it's actually going on because of the tax code so I think it's a great thing now we have this article here uh, from FEE.org by Brittany Hunter Trump is quietly deregulating all things because of all the hoopla because of all the lamestream media trying to foment hate and discontent and everything in the country um, thank God they're missing some of the better stuff that, that President Trump is doing. Uh, more people live in America today have probably never had the experience of sending a telegram. There are a host of reasons for this, the main one being that the telegram stopped being fashionable decades ago as uh, burgeoning technology replaced its use in the modern world. Uh, the very last Western Union telegram was sent 11 years ago. Over a decade too late, the FCC has finally decided to end burdensome regulations that stifled telegraph technology, as Reuters reported. AT&T, originally known as the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, in 2013 lamented the FCC's failure to formally stop enforcing some telegraph rules. Regulations have a tendency to persist long after they outlived any usefulness, and it takes real focus and effort to ultimately remove them from the books, even when everybody agrees that it is common sense thing to do, the company said. Now, let me stop the reading here. The reason why a lot of these regulations are hard to get rid of is because they, they, when Congress set these things up, these bureaucracies, they should have put, and they can still go back and do this. And I've encouraged my congressmen to, to think about this and, and push for it, uh, Lou Barletta and some other ones I've talked to in the past. They need to put a sunset. What they need to do is these regulations and bureaucracies need to be reauthorized every five or ten years. I'd say five years. Some people said that might be too much of a burden, but I'm thinking, what else does a bureaucrat have to do? Most of the time, you know, I, I'm serious. I think most of the time bureaucrats put out new regulations just to justify their jobs. Okay, but they need Congress should come back in all these bureaucracies and say, look, all your regu all your regulations are going to be sunsetted and have to be reapproved every five years and if, the, if this happened then you wouldn't have this situation like AT&T is facing here. Regulations are far easier to create than they are to dismantle as Milton Friedman said. Nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program yet lately there has been an undeniable trend of repealing these types of regulations the likes of which America, America has, hasn't seen since the Reagan administration and in the spirit of giving credit where credit is due this current regulatory rollback is due largely President Donald Trump. Regulations are far easier to create than they are to dismantle. Ronald Reagan left many legacies during his duration in the White House, and while uh, many were less than praiseworthy, the war on drugs springs to mind, he did accomplish some deregulation. In fact, during the Reagan presidency, both the Federal Register and Federal regulations decreased by more than one-third, and, and as impressive as this record surely was, it's already been broken by Donald Trump. Upon taking office, Trump signed an executive order telling federal agencies that they must cut two existing regulations for each new regulation proposed. 
Contained within the executive order was the demand that each federal agency create a task force with the explicit purpose of finding regulations worth slashing. This act was intended to help the newly sworn-in president reach his promise of cutting 70% of the federal regulations. While the talk of regulatory cuts is typical red meat rhetoric, the left was obviously less than pleased with this executive order. A coalition of left-leaning organizations even joined together in February and sued Trump on the grounds that his executive order would potentially block or force repeal of regulations needed to protect health, safety, and the environment across a broad range of topics, from automobile safety to occupational health to air pollution to endangered species. But the lawsuit did not scare Trump away from his objective. When, when Obama had been in office as long as Trump currently has, regulations were 28% higher. But since taking office, Trump has repealed hundreds of these regulations. When Obama had been in office, um, excuse me, I don't know why they, <coughs> I don't know why they sent her twice. Anyway, and when it comes to regulations in general, the score speaks for itself. During the same period of time of their respective presidencies, Obama's regulatory tally was at 1,737, while Trump's is at 1,241. And while Reagan's own regulatory cuts were admirable, they still don't compare with Trump if you judge them by the same time frame. Earlier this October, Trump announced his plan to further cut taxes along with red tape that negatively impact both businesses and consumers. According to CEI, the current level of federal regulatory burdens has amounted to nearly $2 trillion. And while business owners may pay the initial cost, it is inevitably trickled down to the consumer. And I've been telling you guys this for years, folks, but a lot of liberals don't listen to me on this. When overhead costs are raised on entrepreneurs, that cost must be made up for somewhere or from somewhere. Uh, and as CEI also estimates, these hidden costs can amount to about $15,000 per household in any given year. So, again, he's cutting a lot of, uh, uh, and I'm glad they do, uh, but a lot of the anti-freedom folks forgot he signed this executive order. I haven't forgot about this. With this tax reform, he's going to be even deregulating the IRS, which is part of the federal government. He's going to be deregulating that more. And he's well on his way to doing that. Uh, it, 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 this all has to do with, with economic liberty, folks. If they're... Uh, federal regulatory burdens have amounted to nearly two trillion dollars a year on businesses. That two trillion dollars, folks, a lot of scratch. I don't care who you are. Two trillion dollars is a lot of scratch. And if 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 government can cut these burdens, and another one, you know, it's it's better for everybody. And the one that that really boggles my mind is the one about the internet. You know, all this net neutrality. We've got to have the government come in here and regulate all this, right? And I've given example after example after example of foreign countries like China, like Russia, Germany, some of these other countries that are cracking down on free speech through the Internet. Because they have net neutrality. They want to make everything fair. And they want to bring that here to the United States. And they think, I, they think I'm wrong for thinking this. And again, I like competition. I like free markets. You know, at, at one of the biggest corporations in the history of the country before, before the antitrust laws came in under Theodore Roosevelt was Standard Oil. And they had somewhere, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was somewhere close to 90 to 92% of the market share. <gasps> They're a monopoly. 
and me and my son Kyle had this discussion quite a bit. And he said, well, they're, they might as well be a monopoly. And I said, well, then you have to redefine what a monopoly is. Monopoly is 100% control of a sector of a market. I said, they only had 90 92%. When they started talking about antitrust bills, do you know how much they had? And I think this is rough figures. I, I, I may be wrong on this, and I can stand to be corrected. But when they actually passed the antitrust bills and started hammering more on Standard Oil, they had went from 92% some, to somewhere down around 70 to 70, 75 to 72% of market share. Well, what changed? Nothing. Nothing changed but competition. There was still, let's say they, they were at 92%. Let's just say for rough figures. There was still 8% of the market out there, folks, that owned other oil and other oil interests. And what they were doing, those smaller companies tend to be more innovative and more competitive and quicker to change than a big corporation like Standard Oil. And that's how they got the market. And now today, Standard Oil, I mean, I know they've gone through, you know, other, you know, they've been uh, merged with other companies, stuff like that. But if everything was left the way it was and there was no mergers, I think Standard Oil would be down there about the 8% of the market with all a bunch of other players being in there and no one having a majority share of the market. See that? So if there's $2 trillion being spent in regulatory burdens, wouldn't that be better spent if it was spent on, you know, all the, the workers? <gasps> workers' wages and benefits and working conditions, wouldn't that be better? No, no, no. Got to give it to the, you know, we got to have all these regulations. So all this money is being spent. Uh, a lot of this is on fees and, and uh, uh, paperwork and stuff to meet these regulatory and, and lawyers and everything else to, to make sure that they're living up to these regulations. Doesn't go into production, doesn't do anything for the business's bottom line whatsoever. It's just wasted money. So, I, like I said, all these other stuff going on. This is quietly going on in the background, and they're not even realizing how much President Trump is deregulating the government. It's fantastic. I'm happy. I'm, I, and, and I'm giving him an attaboy. Now, this is some uh, other small stories coming up here. Uh, real quick, i got about five minutes. I just want to get into this one. Blunt Force Truth is reporting that there was a, uh, a Twitter employee shuts down President Trump's account. An employee at the left-leaning social media giant Twitter deactivated President Trump's Twitter account on Thursday, sparking widespread outrage across the platform. Twitter's initial statement regarding the incident claimed that the Trump account was inadvertently deactivated due to a human error by a Twitter employee. However, after further investigation, uh, Twitter revealed that the act appeared to be not inadvertent but intentional, carried out by an employee on their last day of work. The revelation immediately sparked harsh criticism at the social media platform, which has long been accused of bias against conservatives. Political analyst uh, Nick Short, who serves as the digital media director of the Security Studies Group, highlighted key concerns uh, about the that the incident actually raised. Uh, do do this, customer service support employee, also mess with Trump's um, Trump's. Um, Twitter account, did he steal any private info as well, Short tweeted. In, other, in another tweet, uh, Short pointed out how this is most likely a reflection on the culture at Twitter. Think about this next time you contact Twitter customer support. Guaranteed, 
This employee and fellow co-workers all share the same ideology, Short wrote. Um, and this is, uh, this is another, this gab I've been, I've been telling you about. You see it in my, um, real quick here, uh, in my social medias uh, area here. If you look up here, I guess you can't. I don't. You won't be able to see the arrow. Up in the upper right-hand corner is uh, the Gab icon, and then over in the over in the upper left corner is Minds.com, uh, and uh, it says here that uh, uh, Gab, the new social media platform that bills itself as free free speech platform, hammered Twitter. Uh, this all comes just one day after Twitter General Counsel Sean Eggett revealed uh, to the Senate Judiciary Committee on Tuesday that the company had censored tweets that were damaging to the Democratic Party during the 2016 election. And we knew about this stuff. This stuff is, is, is old news. And it goes on, so I encourage you to go read that article over there. Uh, and real quick here, uh, this is the last one we'll get into real quick. Vox, no Vox, small government does not mean white nationalism. According to a recent Vox article, or a recent article in Vox, conservatives who denounce government uh, overreach aren't really concerned about burdensome regulations. No, it turns out the language of small government is really just a handmaiden to ethno-nationalism. What? <laughs> Proof, the author David Roberts points to the 2016 New York Times story that depicted a few white men in rural America venting their anger over regu regulations against coal, uh, coal rolling. Uh, a practice of modifying diesel truck engines to spew uh, thick black smoke. Apparently, being a blue-collar white man who likes spewing black smoke in the air makes you a white nationalist. And apparently, spewing black smoke into the air is the essence of liberty and limited government. Uh, Americans need, or um, Roberts is both misguided and self-deluded as he conveniently overlooks a few important factors. Most importantly, or worsenly, he ignores the fact that bureaucratic red tape and regulations are a burden to everyone, regardless of race, and they impose particularly heavy costs on poor people and minorities. And so I'm going to leave it there. And he goes on to say why limited government matters. And folks, that's a good, re that's a good thing to leave the show on. Why does limited government matter? And I was talking to Dave in some tweets this morning. You know, I, I, I do not live a, a bourgeois lifestyle here. But to Marxists and to socialists, that doesn't matter because of my ideas. Because I don't think it's right for us to penalize or to condemn or to threaten people who are financially successful. And according to Marx and his writings, that makes me part of the bourgeoisie because of my attitudes. And in, in, in a social society, I need to be taken out. I need to either be jailed and put in a gulag so you can't ever hear me again, or I just need to be killed. Because those ideas don't conform to Marxism and socialism. So you don't have to be rich to be part of the bourgeoisie. You just have to have the right ideas. And I and Vox is totally just off the rocker. They they are so far left, I don't know how they how they even got a following that actually thinks for themselves. I really don't. And it's just it, it does. It amazes me, folks, how how these people can just continually do this. Please go over to thedanclemmershow.com and the show notes page and uh, check out the notes for the show. They're, like I said, they're totally referenced. Uh, any article that I talked about today and, and more, uh, there's a good article that's going to be over there, Reflections of the Failure of Socialism. It's a long PDF, but it's, it's worth reading, folks. 
This has been the Dan Clements Show. I'm your host, Dan Clements, your constitutional warrior. Remember, if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. Have a great rest of the day, and God bless. And folks, on Sunday, please attend the Church of God's Choice, not your choice. Have a blessed weekend, and we'll see you Monday at noon. Talk Radio. Goodbye.